0: Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants fascinated by mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Lee Brasington on the topic of Dependent Arising. Dependent Arising, also called Dependent Origination, is a Buddhist theory of reality that is famously complex, arcane, and fascinating. Lee Brasington has been practicing meditation for decades and is the senior American student of the late venerable Ayakema. Lee teaches retreats in Europe and North America and is the author of the book Right Concentration, a practical guide to the jhanas. And now without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Deconstructing Dependent Arising. Lee, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself yet again. Oh, thank you. It's very nice to be back yet again. It's good to have you on the show, as always. I just want to point out to the audience that we have actually attempted to record this particular show once before. And because of various glitches and problems, we're going to record it again. So this is our second shot at talking about Dependent Origination. It's not surprising that we have to do it again.
1: It's a, an extraordinarily complex topic. Yeah. And it's really
0: hard to get it down. So dependent origination is kind of an interesting, funny thing in Buddhist theory because it's really complicated. No two people appear to agree about what it even says or means. And I know a lot of practitioners just sort of set it on the shelf, like well, maybe someday I'll figure that out, or someday I'll deal with dependent origination. But for now, that's just beyond me. Yeah, this is pretty common
1: because it's cryptic. The most common presentation is of the 12 items that are linked together. And it really is weird. Carolyn reese Davids, one of the early translators of the suttas, referred to it as a curious old rune. Yes. And you, you, you look at it just at first glance, it doesn't make any sense. Why do you have birth right before the end? Why doesn't birth come first? And then there's tons of other stuff that just doesn't really make any sense. And to get an understanding of what the Buddha was actually talking about is actually quite difficult, even if you read everything in the suttas about it. Because, yeah, it's been worked over so many times that the original teaching is actually
0: quite hard to dig out. Okay, so we're going to attempt to dig out at least some of that in this program. But let's start with a description of what we're even talking about, assuming someone has never read it before and is not even familiar with what a sutta is. Okay,
1: so a sutta would be a discourse or sermon from the Buddha or one of his main disciples. So these would have supposedly occurred between uh, about 450 and 404 BC, so in this time frame. Now, most likely, some of the material we have does come from that time period, and some of it was composed shall we say, over the 100 years following that with words being stuck in the Buddha's mouth. Nothing like, you know, trying to make your little essay sound really good, like claiming it was spoken by the Buddha. So in these discourses, these sermons, it actually says that Paticca Samapada, which we translate as dependent origination or dependent arising, is the Dharma. One who sees the Dharma sees dependent origination. One who sees dependent origination sees the Dharma. Dharma being? The teachings of the Buddha, the essence of what he was trying to teach. Or just plain the truth. The truth with two capital T's. (laughs) Yes. So what is it? Well, basically, it says that things arise dependent on other things. In later Buddhism, this came to be synonymous with what's called emptiness, that nothing stands alone. When you look at a table, it doesn't contain any tableness. It arises dependent on, well, if it's a wooden table, trees and somebody cutting down the trees and somebody milling the lumber and somebody assembling it into a shape and us designating
0: it as a table. And presumably you could take apart the legs and maybe the sections of the table, and then you'd end up with a pile of parts, but nowhere in that pile of parts is a table. Correct. And you wouldn't even have to take it
1: apart. If there was a flood and it came floating by, it's going to be a life raft.
0: (laughs) You just immediately
1: conceive of it in a different way.
0: Yes. So, so far, what we understand is that Dependent Arising is a theory in Buddhist scripture, Mm
1: -hmm. correct? It's as close as we get to metaphysics in
0: Buddhism, Okay, early Buddhism. And it's going to take a little while to unpack this. And so why should we bother to unpack it? Like, why should I care if, let's say, I'm not interested in the religiosity of Buddhism? What do I get out of looking into this as someone who's interested in meditation?
1: Well, one of the other things, besides a table that arises dependently, is how you react to your sensory input. And basically what the Buddha was teaching was for you to change your reactions. He wasn't able to prevent all the unpleasant things that happen in the world from happening, But he was able to teach a way so that when something unpleasant happens, you don't get so freaked out. And part of what enables you to not get so freaked out is understanding the dependently originating nature of your reactions.
0: Of your own experience. Of your own experience,
1: yeah. Not only the dependent originating nature of your sensory input, but particularly the
0: dependently originating nature of how you react to your sensory input. Okay, good. So if we spend the time to look into this, we're going to understand a little more richly our own experience, our own reactions, and presumably even what we are or who we are. Right, exactly. That's the whole idea. Okay, great. I'm ready to buy in. Let's, okay. let's go there.
1: <laughs> All right. So. If we look at what we could say the basic teachings of Buddhism and statements called the Four Noble Truths, the first truth is that Dukkha happens. They used to put that on bumper stickers. Uh, They didn't use a Pali word. They used a (laughs) four-letter Anglo-Saxon word. But it's the same thing. Things go wrong. And the Buddha just simply points out, hey, things go wrong. You incarnate in human form, you're going to experience things going wrong, right? The second truth is that dukkha arises dependent on craving. Okay, so we have dependent origination happening right here. What the Buddha is pointing out is that a necessary condition for the arising of the experience This is bad. This shouldn't be happening. This is unsatisfactory. I hate this. This is a bummer. A necessary condition for that sort of mental functioning to arise in your mind is that there is some craving.
0: You want it to be different in some way?
1: Yeah, exactly. Craving to get what you don't have, craving to keep what you do have, craving to not get what you don't want to have, craving to get rid of what you don't want that you do have, etc., So this craving is a necessary condition. And so now we have the dukkha, the unpleasantness, arises dependent on craving. So here's our first example of it. Now, the cool thing about necessary condition, which apparently wasn't really widely known at the time of the Buddha, was that if you can get rid of the necessary condition, then the Thing that arises dependent on it doesn't arise. And this is the third noble truth. If you don't want any dukkha, don't crave. This is like if you don't want the light on, turn off the light switch. The light switch is a necessary condition for the light to be on. It's not a sufficient condition. You've got to have the power plant pumping out electricity. You've got to have the wires intact and the light switch on. But Even that's not the cause of the light. The cause of the light is electrons getting excited and pumping out photons. But if you just want to turn off the light, you don't need to know any of that. You just need to know where the light switch is and turn it off. Yeah, so if you want to break a chain, you really only need to remove one link, not all the links. Exactly. And this is what the teaching on dependent origination at its heart is really about. Now, knowing that Okay, I need to stop craving if I don't want to experience any unsatisfactoriness. And actually stopping
0: craving are two different things. It well, can sound a little bit like if you don't want to have a headache, just cut off your head. I mean, <laughs> how, do, how do I not crave stuff?
1: Right, exactly. And that's what the fourth of these noble truths is all about, which is the path of practice that leads to the end of dukkha. But actually, it's the path of practice that teaches you how to stop craving. And this path of practice, what it uncovers, is the dependently
0: originated nature of the universe. And could we also say the empty nature of the universe, if we were to speak sort of like later Buddhist? Yes.
1: Nagarjuna, who lived in the second century AD, so we're saying 500 years after the Buddha, actually in his Mulamayamaka Karika, the fundamental verses on the middle way, explicitly points out that everything is dependently originated, everything is empty. In other words, he points to the fact that they're exactly the same thing, just different words, just different fingers pointing at the same moon.
0: Okay, so just to back up a little bit, you've been talking about dependent origination, but then you just told us the Four Noble Truths. So, I still am not hearing the dependent origination.
1: <laughs> okay. So, the Four Noble Truths are, as my teacher, Aya used to say, dependent origination in telegram style. Or as we'd say today, dependent origination in Twitter style. So, dependent origination in its most general form is that Things arise dependent on other things. Nothing stands alone. It's explicitly laid out as... uh, Isn't it like a a list of 12 things? Right. It's explicitly laid out as a list of varying numbers of things, the most common example being 12 things. The 12 is probably a later development. The Buddha might be quite surprised to find out that there were 12 in the list. I'm not sure that
0: the 12 showed up during his lifetime. Well, just for our edification, because most people encounter it as a list of 12 things, at least in America. So. Right. So what's the list? What's the list? All right. So old age, sickness, and death,
1: which are dukkha, arise dependent on birth, which is yeah, pretty obvious. If you don't get born, you don't experience any old age, sickness, or death. Okay. Birth arises dependent on becoming. Becoming, we could sort of look at as like the urge that Mother Nature has to reproduce. So birth arises out of the urge to reproduce. Becoming. Becoming arises dependent on clinging. Clinging arises dependent on craving. So clinging is, I've got it. But you've got to actually crave it to really want to hang on to it. If you have a pair of worn out socks, got holes in them, and somebody says, hey, can I have those socks? You're like, sure, fine. You're not craving them. But, you know, your new electric car, somebody says, hey, can I have your car? It's like, no, man. <laughs>
0: how's, your, how's your leaf doing?
1: <laughs> no, I have a bolt. How's your bolt doing? It's doing great.
0: How long have you had your bolt?
1: I uh, got it in August. So uh, what's that? Uh, seven months, six and a half months.
0: And you're, you're completely pleased with your car.
1: So far, so good. Yeah, it's really, really nice. It is a dependently originated phenomenon. Yes. And my love of it is dependent on the fact that it's taking me where I wanted to go. It's green, it's comfortable, it's
0: fun to drive. It's not destroying the atmosphere. And it's green. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you've got a little bit of craving for your bolt. Right.
1: I have a little bit of clinging for my bolt, Yes. right? Because th- there's things about it that give me pleasure. Now, that's the whole key, all right? The clinging arises dependent on craving. Craving arises dependent on, well, the word in Pali is vedana. We could translate it as valence, but maybe that's a little too obscure. Valence as in emotional tone? Yes, but not so much emotional tone as the tone of the input. Hedonic tone, perhaps. Okay. And they're... Three possibilities, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Okay, that's it. You know, when you get a sensory input, it's going to generate in either a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral reaction. This is actually quite important to see. All right, so the Vedana are are dependent on sensory input. When there's a sensory input, there is going to be a Vedana. It's going to rise within the first tenth of a second after your sensory input. And you're going to start Basically, dealing with the sensory input, and the first cut that you make to deal with it is to
0: put it in one of three categories, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So as sensory input is streaming in, you're essentially judging it or having a reaction to it, saying, I like it, I don't like it, or I don't care. Right. And the I like
1: it, if you're not careful, result in craving to get it and keep it, and then you're clinging to it. Or if you don't like it, craving to make it go away, right? If it's unpleasant,
0: yeah,
1: right? Or if it's neutral, you can ignore it. Because it seems like somebody handed most of us an instruction manual when we got born that said, seek pleasure, avoid pain, live forever. Yeah. <laughs> and the Vedna is how we seek pleasure and avoid pain. You can <laughs> see this is actually an almost universal thing for life. If you have amoebas... And you put some food in it, they'll go towards it. You put some salt in where they are, and they'll go away from it. So anything that's alive is responding to its environment, either positively or negatively. Yeah, but
0: there's an approach and withdrawal behavior. Right. Yeah.
1: And basically, this is how evolution works, right? There are things that actually work to maintain the species. And so it moves towards the stuff that supports, which we would call pleasant the preservation of the species, and away from things that tend to bring it to an end. Okay, so let's recap here. All right, so we have old age, sickness, and death that are dependent on being born, which is dependent on becoming, which is dependent on clinging, which is dependent on craving, which is dependent upon pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Which is dependent on? Sensory contact. So Okay, so basically what's happening, there's a sensory contact... And then that's going to be followed by a Vedna of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And if you're not careful, you'll wind up in craving and clinging and eventually dukkha. So one of the things to know about dependent origination is that it's very important to get in there between the arising of the vedana and the arising of the craving.
0: That certainly matches my meditation experience, but right. let's just get the rest of the
1: list okay. first. Okay, so you're... Sensory contact depends upon having sense organs, right? And in Buddhism, there are six senses. There are the five external senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and then the sixth sense of the mind. So your thoughts and emotions and memories and intentions. Your sense organs are dependent upon having a mind and body. At least that's how the phrase nama rupa is usually translated independent origination. It literally means name and form, and we could probably do a whole podcast discussing what name and form. You bet. Yeah, Yeah, what's going on there? But often, independent origination is mind and body. In other words, you don't find senses wandering around, except if they're embedded. Eyeballs rolling down the road, seeing (laughs) things. Exactly, they're embedded in a mind and body. Mind and body is dependent on consciousness. If you have a mind and body and you're not conscious, things are not working. And if you stay that way long, you're going to be dead. So you really need consciousness happening. Consciousness requires an object, and the objects are referred to as sankaras. Anything that is manufactured is a sankara. So you're a sankara, I'm a sankara, that table's a sankara, my bolt is a sankara.
0: I, I was not manufactured.
1: <laughs> you were put together out of pieces. Okay. Literally, sankara means making together. Yes. So you were made together out of cells. You're made together out of a sperm and an egg, right? So you're made together out of the food that you've eaten, the air that you breathe, the water you've drunk. Yeah, it goes on and on and on.
0: So consciousness requires this an, an, assembly. An object, yep. And an object
1: is a sankara, something that's manufactured. Yep. And sankaras arise dependent on ignorance which sounds a little strange until you really begin to get into the depths of the Buddhist teachings and you start realizing that the things that are made together are actually what our mind is doing. They don't have independent existence. So we are ignoring the fact that actually there's just the whole universe which is too big for our little pea brains to handle, so we chop it up into bits and pieces. We make it into these sankharas, the table and the bolt and you and me, and that's what we become conscious of. The word consciousness is vijnana, and it appears to mean, in Pali, divided knowing. So when you become conscious of something, you divide the thing you're conscious of out from the rest of, well, say, the visual field. If you just say, look at a scene and you see a horse, you've divided the horse out from all the trees and grass and fence and whatever else is there. So consciousness divided knowing does its dividing and comes up with these sankharas, these concoctions, fabrications as the best translations, which is happening out of ignorance. That's the best way of interpreting the 12 links. The standard way of interpreting the 12 links is that this happens over three lifetimes. Yeah, it's not about your own sensory experience, right? The way it's... Well, in the middle there, it's about your own sensory experience. But the the whole thing is over three lifetimes. In your previous life, you were ignorant. And you made karmic formations, which is what they translate sankara as, which, okay, they're ignoring what the word means, which that's pretty typical of the commentaries. So in your previous life, you were ignorant, you acted in ways that now you've been incarnated in this life with a certain type of consciousness and mind and body. And then the real stuff happens. You get sensory input through your senses, and it produces And If you're not careful, you get craving and clinging. That's this life. And then when you die, because you're clinging to still incarnate, you will become again in the future and be born and experience old age, sickness, and death in that life. And who's the
0: originator of this (laughs) three-lifetime interpretation?
1: We have no idea. There's no sutta, none of the, shall we say, 6,000 discourses from the early Buddhism that would be interpreted as three lifetimes. There is one that could be interpreted as two lifetimes, but the suttas are pretty much anonymous. So probably what happened was the two-lifetime interpretation got shoved in there after the Buddha's death, I would think, and then it got expanded the two-lifetime interpretation only has nine links, not 12. And then it got expanded to the 12 links and the three-lifetime models stuck in. And it becomes popular in the Abhidhamma, which is 200 or so years after the Buddha's death, and becomes the de facto standard for Theravada Buddhism by the, the Vasudhimaga, which is like 900 years after the Buddha's death.
0: Yeah. So we've got kind of this crazy, difficult to understand list and then some even weirder interpretations. Correct. So how can we understand this in a way that's helpful? Well, one of the ways that's helpful for understanding it is to look
1: at all the examples of dependent origination in those 6,000 suttas and try and find what we can that we might identify as early. Clearly there are layers in here, so we're doing some archaeological work. Early,
0: to... you mean versions of the list?
1: Yeah, early versions of the list, probably composed early in the Buddha's teaching career. And there actually does turn out to be a version of it that it's in a collection called the Vaga, which most scholars say probably represents the very earliest strata of the Buddha's teachings. In fact, Gil Fronstal has a translation of this which also includes a nice commentary, in a book entitled The Buddha Before Buddhism. Okay, so we're getting really early material here. And so in the 11th Sutta in Sutta Nipata Book 4, the list is quarrels and disputes arise dependent upon what's endearing. Endearing arises dependent on what's desirable. Desirable arises dependent on what's pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant and unpleasant arises dependent on contact, and contact arises dependent on Nama Rupa, name and form. So this appears to be the earliest version of it, and you notice the birth and becoming weren't in there, and the six senses weren't there, and consciousness, sankaras, and ignorance weren't there. Yeah, so it's a stripped-down list that seems easier to understand. Yes, and it actually makes sense. And it's saying exactly the same thing using slightly different words. Right? And so instead of dukkha, we've got quarrels and disputes. Instead of clinging, we've got endearing. Instead of craving, we've got desirable. Instead of vedna, we have it is pleasant, it is unpleasant. We have exactly the same word for contact and exactly the same phrase, namarupa, for namarupa. Mind and body is how it's usually translated.
0: Yeah, so this six-piece list seems not only easier to understand, but it's in more everyday language. Yes, yes.
1: So the question that arises, how do we get from the sixth list to the twelve list? Yeah. Yeah. And why? And, and why? And we can see that the six list got some new words, which I just mentioned, and then other things got stuffed in there you can actually watch the bits and pieces get stuffed in along the way until you wind up with the twelve. You could actually put this in some sort of chronological order and see the development of it. It turns out there's the Vedic Hymn of Creation. So the Vedas are part of Brahmanism, which was the dominant religious paradigm at the time of the Buddha. And so the Brahmins would memorize these chants, and one of the chants was the Vedic Hymn of Creation. And it turns out the Vedic humor of creation is very, very similar to the 12 links of dependent origination. And in fact, you can basically identify the 12 links of dependent origination. So the Buddha had a lot of disciples that were former Brahmins. In fact, I would guess that probably that was the caste that he drew the most from caste system at that time in India was not quite as rigid as it is today, even though it supposedly no longer exists in India. But it was just beginning to be formed at that time. But the Brahmins were the spiritual teachers, and so they were the ones probably most interested in spiritual teachings, like the Buddha was doing. And so it would appear that the Buddha took the words from the hymn of creation but gave him a different tune. He did this frequently. There are numerous words in Buddhism that he adopted from some other religion, but he changed the meaning slightly.
0: One example of something close to that that comes to mind for me is the fire sermon. Yeah. Because, of course, a Vedic Brahmin has a fire ceremony as the core ritual of the religion. You do fire ceremony as the how you practice exactly. Vedic Brahmanism. And so the Buddha in that sermon takes the whole metaphor of doing a fire ceremony or doing a fire worship and kind of flips it on its head. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: so he did this all over. I mean, you could take a, a word like asava, which to the Jains meant the influxes, all your bad karma coming to fruition. And the Buddha goes back to the original meaning, which means intoxicants. We are intoxicated by sensual desire by becoming by ignorance, and we act stupid, like we're intoxicated because of these. So he he does this frequently, and it appears that he just took his idea with the original words found in Sutta Nipata 4.11, and just put in the words that his Brahminical disciples were more familiar with, but changed the meaning of it. What happened, though, appears to be is that the other words to that other song kept getting stuffed in there until we wind up with this curious old rune that
0: actually really is difficult to make sense of. So now we get to the crux of the matter. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of talked about the history of these spiritual documents and how they got unpacked over time or how variously encrusted over time. But how do you make sense of it? What does it mean? What is the Buddha attempting to teach us with? Well, I
1: think there's several levels of meaning. If we're looking at the links, the most important is basically that you get sensory input, and that sensory input is going to generate pleasant, unpleasant, neutral Vedana. How are you going to deal with those vedna? Uh, the so you vedna? like
0: some stuff, you don't like some other stuff.
1: Yeah, some stuff you just can ignore. So, so how are you going to deal with that? How are you going to respond to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, normally we react to it, but you know, what if you could respond to it? One of the big things that's come out of Buddhism is mindfulness. Mindfulness was very important to the Buddha. And it's nice to see that it's got a lot going on, but I don't think it gets the full measure in the secular world. The second establishment of mindfulness, first establishment is body, but the second establishment is Vedna.
0: What do you mean, establishment?
1: Arena in which to establish your mindfulness. So hmm. the first arena in which to establish your mindfulness is mindfulness of your body. Right, okay. And the second arena in which to establish your mindfulness is the Vedna, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, Categorizations of your sensory input. Right. So it's things to use your mindfulness on, essentially. Right. Yeah. 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 Things to aim your mindfulness at. Yes. Right. And so you need to be mindful of your Vedana. Know that they're happening. If you can be mindful of it, you have a chance to get in there between the arising of the Vedana and the onset of craving. The Vedana arises automatically when you get a sensory input you don't have any control over that but you do have a chance to respond in ways that are wiser other than just simply craving the pleasant or craving for the absence of the unpleasant and so if you're mindful and you're seeing this is a pleasant vedana, then you've got a chance
0: to deal with it in a healthy way now this takes place very quickly yes so this is where concentration and a lot of clarity is necessary to notice that moment of the arising of the craving and aversion.
1: Actually, to notice the moment of arising of the pleasant and the unpleasant. Mm-hmm. You want to get there. Yeah. And so what you need to do is make a habit of recognizing, oh, I'm experiencing something pleasant. Oh, I'm experiencing something unpleasant. Oh, I'm experiencing something and I don't really care. So you want to be there as opposed to suddenly realizing
0: that you're swept away with craving and clinging. Which is as that pleasant and unpleasant unfolds, you start to get swept away in the... Right. What the
1: Buddha actually talks about, he says that when there's the Vedna, that's immediately followed by sanya, which is usually translated as perception, but I want to translate it as conceptualization. In other words, there's something pleasant, and you conceptualize what this thing is. This is my friend, that's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, whatever the sensory input is. And then what follows are, and we're back to this old word, sankara, which usually gets translated as mental formations, but I would translate it as mental activities. Okay, so there's a sensory input. It produces a Vedana. You identify what the sensory input is by conceptualizing it. And then you start thinking and emoting and having memories come up. And if you're not careful, it runs off and gets away from you. And one of the sankharas that gets created is craving and or clinging. And so instead, the Buddhists recommend you get in there. You experience the pleasant. You can identify it, and that's it. Don't go any further. Mm -hmm. Don't get lost in what comes up. And from your viewpoint, how do you not go any further? Practice. Same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. Practice. Mm -hmm. In other words, one of the things is to get your mind in there so that you actually can see what's going on. The other is to recognize that the going further when it leads to craving and clinging actually does lead to dukkha. And this is getting some of the teaching of dependent origination. Particularly that, oh yeah, anytime I'm in dukkha, if the Buddha's correct, then there must have been some craving associated with it. And this is another establishment of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the Four Noble Truths actually in action. Recognizing, oh, I'm experiencing dukkha. And then identifying what's the craving associated with this. And then can I let go of this craving? Now, identifying what the craving is, you can usually do that. But letting go of it is like, no, I really want that chocolate. Yeah. Okay, so... You've got to be able to identify the dukkha and you've got to be able to identify the craving and see, okay, this is a relationship that's going on. And then sometimes you can let go of the craving and whoa, the dukkha disappears right away. Maybe the Buddha's onto something here. So you've got two things going on. One is making the habit of really paying attention when you get pleasant, unpleasant, neutral sensory input. And the other is coming to understand that, yeah, indeed, this craving is not a good thing because it often leads to experiencing dukkha. All the dukkha I experience is arising due to some sort of craving. So it's the combination of those two that are what you're actually working on.
0: You keep using this phrase, then you see if you can let go of the craving. Right. Right. So there's like kind of a magic moment in there of, how do I let go of it? Well, the
1: magic comes when you've got enough insight into the nature of reality. In particular, you're able to see the impermanent nature of that which you're craving, the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of that which you are craving, or the empty, coreless nature of that which you are craving. The empty coreless bit is probably the most difficult to see, but guess what? We have dependent origination to help us with this. So that nice new Chevy Bolt that you're craving is a dependently originated phenomena. It's not going to be ultimately satisfying. It is going to wear out eventually, and it's going to cost a lot of money to start with. And it's empty. It's something that's dependently originated. The whole lot of parts that went into it, a lot less than on your Corvette. But, you know, it's still got a lot of parts in there. And if you were to take all the parts apart, you wouldn't find a bolt. Well, there's probably lots of bolts. Yeah, there's lots of bolts. (laughs) But you wouldn't find a Chevy bolt. You wouldn't find the essence of it in any of that. It's just a conglomeration that we're finding quite
0: useful to get from one place to another. Yeah, but there is no... Sort of platonic essence of Chevy boldness that you're going to find at the bottom of the heap somewhere. Right. You
1: won't even find car or automobile or transportation or anything like that. These are all concepts we're laying on top of everything. You eventually begin to get the idea, oh, all my conceptualization, I'm, I'm really caught up in playing with my concepts I'm lost in my concepts, as opposed to really understanding what's going on. And this can help not get so attached, craving, clinging, to what's going on. You see, it's just a concept. Can you take your automobile and just use it for transportation without getting a craving and clinging to it? And, you know, you go out one day and it's been stolen, how are you gonna react? Yeah, you know, if it's just transportation, it's like, oh, I guess I have to call the police about this. You if it's your some. baby, <laughs> it's gonna hurt a lot more.
0: Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. So I did want to come back around to the emptiness part since right. That's usually a much more familiar concept to people, at least as a word or as right. something that is an important point in Buddhist practice. So dependent origination seems to be saying something about emptiness, how things are constructed, right. so to speak. But it also seems to be saying more than that, like how that leads to suffering. Right. Yeah. One of the things it's saying is that whatever it
1: is that you're craving and clinging to, it's a constructed thing. All that arises also ceases. This is a fairly common realization that's spoken of in the suttas. So whatever it is, this is a constructed thing, and it's, it's going to wear out. Get hold of the fact that it's impermanent. It's not going to give you lasting happiness. right? It may give you some temporary happiness, but it's not going to be ultimately satisfying. And it may not even be ultimately satisfying, and yet it hasn't manifested that impermanence. You know, when I was a kid, the Sears and Robot catalog would come in November. You know, the toys part in the back there. Yeah, and I looked through all the toys, and I'm going to get me one of these. Santa Claus is going to bring it. And he did, and I got it. It was fantastic for three days. And then, you know, it's like, okay. Right, so nothing is ultimately satisfying. It's just not possible for something to be ultimately satisfying it can provide some temporary satisfaction and certainly enjoy it when it's doing that and then the fact that it is a dependently arisen phenomena it doesn't have essence and it's empty so these are just sort of three windows into the same thing three lenses for looking at the same thing the impermanent nature of it because it's dependently originated the unsatisfactory nature of it because it's impermanent and dependently originated and the essencelessness of it since it's just a collection of parts assembled in a way that we conceptualize it as whatever it is we're conceptualizing it as.
0: Good, so bring us back from there to the Four Noble Truths again. Like, How do you pack dependent origination back into this list of four things?
1: Okay, so the problem is Dukkha. That's what's wrong. You know, the dukkha arises in this world. We found a necessary condition that it arises dependent on. Dukkha is a dependently arisen phenomena. It's a mental thing, and it has some sort of craving as a necessary condition. If we can find a necessary condition that we can manipulate and turn it off, then the antecedent condition goes away. In other words, if we stop craving, there won't be any dukkha. And then there's the path to learn to stop craving. And a lot of that path actually has aspects of dependent origination in it. The first thing is right view. And right view at times is about keeping an open mind, about not getting entangled in views. But at other times it's about, well, the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination. There's right intention. The Buddha says the right intentions are renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness. So renunciation is letting go. That's something to do with not craving and clinging, right? And love and compassion, basically. Then we have right speech, and use your speech truthfully in a way that can be easily understood and not frivolously. Right action, that's refraining from killing, stealing, misusing your sexual energy, a right livelihood. How you manage to stay alive in this world should arise from doing something that makes the world a better place, not a worse place. Again, this is dependent origination. You need to eat, you need to get money so you can buy food, so you can eat. How do you get that money? Whatever you do is going to have consequences. Is it going to make the world a better place or a worse place? So there's dependent origination in that as well. Then there's right effort, which can be effort is not too much, not too little. The phrase I like is relaxed diligence, but also effort as the four great efforts to make an arisen unwholesome state go away, to make an unarisen wholesome state not arise to make an unarisen, wholesome state arise, and to make an arisen, wholesome state stick around and come to perfection. Now you notice there's arising in there, dependent origination, dependent arising. So if you're gonna understand how states of mind arise, you're gonna be exploring dependent origination, dependent arising. Then right mindfulness, okay, so mindfulness of the body, in particular, paying attention to what goes on there, and you're gonna see dependent origination there. Mindfulness of the vedna, which we've already talked about. Mindfulness of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral categorizations of your sensory input. The next one is mindfulness of mind states. Now this is just knowing the states, but once you know a state, the fourth establishment of mindfulness is how do you deal with these states? In particular, are they a hindrance to your practice? And if they're a hindrance, you know how'd you get there? How can you get out of it? All this is you know dependent origination. If it's a positive state, one of the factors of awakening, yeah, how do you get there? How do you keep it around? And then right concentration which is defined as the jhanas, and the jhanas are dependently originated states. You want to get to the jhanas, then you need to have a foundation of sila so that when you sit down to meditate, you have a clear mind, that you can get concentrated, that you can then aim at something pleasant, and then you can have this state arise, and from that you can transform it to the next one, etc. So dependent origination flows through all of the Four Noble Truths
0: and through the Eightfold Path as well. And so if I wanted to just kind of keep it in mind in the, the simplest way possible as I'm practicing or walking around, what's kind of the... the bare bones. The bare bones or the motto or, you know...
1: Yeah. Uh, at its most bare, it would be everything arises dependent on other
0: things. Right. So right. this makes me recall the Thich Nhat Hanh interbeing yeah. description. You know? right. If we have a piece of paper in a book we're reading... That piece of paper it kind of says it poetically, but it's like made of the sunlight that shone on the trees and the rain clouds yeah. that dropped the rain water that fed the trees. And, you know, it goes through a whole list. Right. Yeah. And, and it's brilliant.
1: It's, yeah. That's an important part of seeing what's going on there. I actually like to take it something that's not quite as succinct as everything arises dependent on other things is what I want to say is what I call soda pie. S-O-D-A-P-I, streams of dependently arising processes interacting. And that's the entire universe. There are nothing but streams of dependently arising processes interacting.
0: So, so this is where we're getting from metaphorically Newtonian chunks into metaphorically Einsteinian or quantum fluxes. Yeah. It's
1: very important to realize there actually aren't any nouns. It's just some verbs move kind of slow.
0: Although you did say streams.
1: Yeah, actually it would be better to say streamings. Okay, so nothing but streamingly nothing but streamings of dependently arising processes interacting. I can't quite get the nounness out of the streamings because a major way that we interact with our environment is to make entities, this conceptualizing. And so it's really hard to communicate. But yeah, the whole thing of soda pie should be seen as a verb,
0: Yeah, this makes sense. I mean, we understand that there are no actual classes of things, right? The whole right. idea that there's two identical things in a class is just a conceptualization. And yet we need that to have nouns at all because nouns define classes, right? right? So,
1: yeah, we actually need it to communicate but we have to be really important not to confuse the map with the territory. And what we're doing with our communication is we're drawing a map for someone. What we're actually doing with communication, as far as I've been able to tell, is we take a concept and we throw the concept to the other person. And then we throw them another concept and we throw them another concept and we're hoping they'll take those concepts and assemble them into the idea that we
0: had. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. The typical move here is to say, well, there's no real nouns out there in the world or no actual objects, and then we'll start going into some quantum this or that. Right. However, for me, that's not really the interesting direction unless we're going to do it as actual physics. Correct. As physicists. When I hear you talk about the SOTAPI, the streams of. Dependently
1: arising phenomena interacting
0: or yeah. processes interacting. So let's just say streams of processes interacting for short. Uh-huh. To me, what you're pointing to is the direct first-person experience of your own senses because it's just information streams. Right. And so instead of making that move of, yeah, we're going to talk about that there's no objects in the exterior world It's more like, well, there might be, but what's important for meditation is to notice that all you're experiencing is a stream of sensory input. Yeah.
1: However, the objects in the material world, what I think is the most profound discourse of all the suttas, the Venerable Kachyana Gota asks the Buddha, Right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? The Buddha replies, Kachyana, this world for the most part depends upon a duality the notion it is and the notion it is not. And so the Buddha then proceeds to chart a path in the middle between it is and it is not. And he concludes by saying, without veering towards either of these extremes, everything is or everything is not, a tathagata, one who truly knows, teaches the Dhamma, the truth, via the middle. With this as necessary condition, that arises. With the ceasing of
0: this necessary condition, that ceases. In other words, dependent origination. Yes, but when he says the world, is is he talking about... The the sensory
1: input world.
0: Right, which is what I'm pointing at. It's the first-person experience world. Yes,
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So he's not the least bit interested on what's going on out there. What he's interested in is how are you responding
0: to your sensory input? Right. And just metaphorically, but with a fair amount of accuracy, we can take, for example, a sense organ like the eye and the optic nerve and compare it to something like a video camera with a cable. Yeah. And you know, it's taking photons and converting it to signals, and the signals are moving along that cable, and then they get interpreted. And it's that stream of signals that I think you're referring to when you talk about sodapi
1: Yeah, it's the stream of signals, but some of the signals you don't pick up on it, or you're not aware of it, and they're still influencing you. Like uh, your first grade teacher. You probably hadn't thought about her all day, but she's still influencing what's happening with you right now. The fact that we're doing this in English. One of the streams that's making us speak this in English is that the British came over here, ran off the Dutch, ran off the French, ran off the Spanish, and suppressed the natives. That stream is why we're
0: speaking English here. Sure, but now you're taking it into another direction, right? That's like an orthogonal dimension. <laughs> it's important to see all
1: of these directions, not, yeah. just, okay. not just the direction of the sensory input, but the entire world. So what you want to do is basically cut off any avenue where you might try and run off and do some craving and clinging and see that it's all just dependently arising phenomena. And you're experiencing them as streams, but even if you step out of your experience and try and contact what's behind my experience, you're not gonna find anything else other than just all these streams running into each other. In other words, there is no solidity to be found anywhere. And
0: how are you gonna deal with that? Well, and who is the you that thinks you're solid to try to deal with that, Because right? <laughs> it works in the other direction as well, right? Right,
1: and the you is some aspect of your memories, thoughts, and emotions that has now come into working memory, and you're calling it by your name.
0: Right, which is just more streams of experience, especially exactly. if we take the mind sense as the sixth sense, right? Exactly. So that memory exactly. is just another stream. Yeah. What
1: we've talked about, so far, it is only scratching the surface of the various interpretations. Another really important practical recognition or interpretation of dependent origination is that what gets born is a
0: sense of self. So, what? Slow that down. What gets born is a sense of self? Yeah.
1: So, you're conscious and you have a mind and body.
0: There's, There's just streams of dependently arising, <laughs> you know, information. Later. Yeah, so
1: let's play it out. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa. Oh, okay. And it's from his book, Practical
0: Dependent Origination. Right. There's a book called Practical Dependent Origination?
1: Yeah. It's I mean. been superseded by a much better book, which takes all of his teachings on dependent origination. Uh, it was translated by Santi Caro, and the name escapes me right now. Mm. It was going to be called It All Depends, which is a much better title than (laughs) the publisher came up with. Oh, it's entitled Under the Bodhi Tree. Mm. Okay. But what Buddhadasis is, all right, you're conscious, you have a mind and body, and you're conscious. You have sense organs, they get sense contacts. This produces Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. If you're not careful, this leads to craving and clinging. And the craving and clinging will result in becoming and you're generating a sense of self as the craver and the clinger. I mean, if you're craving something, it has to be somebody who's going to get it. If you're clinging to something, it has to be somebody who owns it. And so the birth is the birth of the sense of self. But the self is uh, an illusory made up thing, so it often dies. An example, you've never had a mango. You go to the grocery store, you're in the produce section, you see a sign that says mangoes. You're like, oh, I heard of mangoes. They're supposed to be good. So you take a mango home, and you put away the rest of the groceries, and you attack the mango. And, of course, you get it peeled, and you make a big mess, because that's what happens when you attack a mango the first time. But now... But they're delicious. You're there. You've got your conscious mind and body, and you've got your sense of taste, and mango hits the tongue. Contact. Vedena, pleasant Oh, lots of pleasant (laughs) Pleasant It's really good, this is great I'm going to get some more and in fact my friends Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice they've never had a mango (laughs) I'm going to turn them on to mango so you go see your friends and you bring a mango and they're like oh cool, a mango and they love it and you've become the mango bringer Right? And every time you go see your friends, you bring them a mango, and they're like, oh, cool, another mango. Until about the 10th time, they're like, what's with all the mangoes? Uh-oh, death of the mango bringer. But you create a sense of self around the stuff that you crave and cling to. And this is actually a very important way of looking at dependent origination. So here's another much more useful one than the three-lifetime model. But again, it's not exhaustive. I mean, dependent origination's got so many layers.
0: Yeah. So what you're pointing to there is that you can basically build senses of self around things that you crave and cling to.
1: Yes, exactly. So
0: here we are doing this interview in Oakland, and there's everyone running around with their Raiders jerseys and their Raiders hats and their Raiders cars and the Oakland Raiders, this and that, right? Or this year, it would be more probably the Golden State State Warriors. But those are objects of craving and clinging that get expanded into really complex identities yes exactly yeah
1: exactly i mean the whole soccer hooliganism in europe is (laughs) just getting completely out of hand
0: yeah okay i see that i'm curious about this is a punch in for a different point Uh uh-huh you know one of the interesting things about noticing that moment of contact Vedna craving. To me, that place I'm actually talking about often in these conversations on deconstructing yourself with practice, you can begin to notice earlier and earlier moments in the actual construction of perception.
1: Yes, yes.
0: So instead of seeing in the average way of noticing a simple object in the world, the computer on the desk that's how we work it's very efficient it's just there's a computer but if you pay really close attention a lot happens before that moment of that's a computer oh yeah yeah and it seems like that's a lot of what you're talking about there's this noticing of at first it's just some shapes and some color and some darkness brightness maybe a humming sound but we don't even know it's humming yet right there's just the very basics of the beginning of like raw sense input right and then gradually that sense input gets kind of like voted up the chain of interpretation and it starts to get layered on that oh that's a rectangular shape and it's kind of shiny and metallic and it's got a big glowing apple on it and oh it's a computer right Right, and now we've kind of found its label. Right. Though,
1: interestingly, neuroscience says that we guess is what it is. We guess it's a computer, and then we start looking for things that indicate, yeah, it's rectangular, it's got the glowing apple, must be a computer.
0: But we guess based on previous input exactly and then the beginnings of this input right
1: so it's coming from both the bottom up and the top down and when they meet in the middle and it all still makes sense then we go we got it
0: yeah i think it's just so fascinating to really start to kind of magnify that moment or sort of slow yeah. it down uh-huh. so that there can be a way to point your attention at a spot in that construction of the concept of computer previous to it becoming an object yes yes now for me that's one of the ways under this hood of craving yeah because if it doesn't become an actual thing as a concept it's hard to crave it exactly right if you just see the visual shape and leave it as just the visual shape And notice that as you're putting it, the streams of codependent arising phenomena interacting, it's not even a stable shape, Right. right? The shape is moving and changing. The light is reflecting differently, the sound and all that. To me, that gives us that moment right in there and kind of hanging out in that moment is really crucial. Yeah. This is what the open awareness practices that show up
1: both in the Vipassana movement and in Tibetan teachings, and I assume in the shikantaza of Zen, is all about. It's just really being open to what the sensory feel is like prior to processing. Yeah, or and,
0: very early in the process. Right. Yeah, exactly. They would claim it's without processing, but I don't. Right. I, I well, don't. Try, trying possible. to get as <laughs> early as possible. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You can't very easily
1: get before any processing, and if you do, it's a pretty profound state.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Lee, thanks for unpacking a little bit the very complex topic of dependent arising. Anything you want to leave the listeners with?
1: Yeah. In the Tibetan tradition, they talk about a teaching having multiple levels, you know, the obvious level and the secret level and the most secret level or something. The Buddha said he teaches with an open hand. So there's no secret. No Musti. <laughs> yeah. So there's no secrets here, but there are multiple levels. The most important level to get is that sensory input generates VEDNA, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. How are you going to respond to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? That's sort of the most basic level of dependent origination. And then you start getting into deeper and more profound levels to eventually getting to the point where the idea of existing and non-existing is irrelevant and you're just seeing all the streamings running into each other and there's a lot of stuff to be played with along the way so the the key thing is get that bit about how are you are going to respond to your input and then add the other bits and pieces as you get more understanding thanks lee thank you